0: Good morning. You guys doing all right this morning? Good. Well, my name is Chris Cogger. I'm the campus pastor, and I get a great opportunity to speak to you guys today in our continuing series called Big Questions, Honest Answers. And as you can see by the video screen, those are great examples of how we have all botched it. And today we're going to ask the question, when I blow it, how do I fix it? And as I began to kind of walk through preparing this message, I thought, you know what? I'm a perfect candidate to give this message because I have botched it in every area of my life. I mean, I have lied and I've stolen and I've cheated and I've uh, lusted and I've been rude and mean. I've I've, uh, blown it with my family, with my marriage, with my kids. I mean, since an early age, I've been an expert botcher-upper guy. That's me. And maybe you guys are thinking, man, yeah, I know. I mean, no one in here could say they haven't messed up. We all know what that looks like when we look around our lives. And usually at this kind of point in the message, I kind of try and get everybody on the same page. Everyone kind of going, yeah, I want to lean in and find out what that's all about. But we all know what that is all about. It's pretty self-explanatory. We all know what this looks like. That's times where we feel like life doesn't work out the way we wanted to, the, the way things have, uh, that we've kind of blown it, where we get that pit in our stomach and whether it's our marriages or it's uh, other relationships, friendships or something, at job where we cost the, the company money or reputation, it's, it's those times in life where we said, man, if, if I could go back and change it and make a different decision, boy, I would. You know, in the Bible, uh, they describe this experience of kind of botching it or blowing it as uh, with the word sin. And sin is actually not a Bible term, it's not a, uh, a, a word that God made up, it's actually an archery term. That when we kind of shoot and try and hit the, the, the target, the bullseye, and we miss, that's called sin. We sin left or we sin right. It's an it's a archery term. And we know that no one is really immune to sin, that we've all been afflicted by this condition. And as we look around the world, and we don't have to look beyond our lives, but as we look around the world, we see all kinds of examples. We see it in business leaders, and we see it in sports figures, and we see it in coaches, and we see it in entertainers and politicians. I mean, places where they have totally blown it. And usually when we see those guys, even though we know we're blown it in areas of our own lives, we go, man, how could they do that? They had all this opportunity, they have all that talent, they had all that money, and they blew it. Well, I'm going to spend the bulk of my time this morning really trying to just walk you guys through uh, this incredible story. That if it happened today, I mean, there would be so much media around this one story. I mean, it would be like a media circus and social media. They would be blowing them up on Twitter and blowing them up on Facebook. I mean, it would be out there. And we all have an opinion about it. And it's about a guy named David. Now, at the beginning of the story, David, I mean, he has things going well. He's in a good spot. He's the king of Israel. He's uh, well-respected all around the kingdom. He's uh, been a great military leader, and so everybody loves him. He's happily married. He's connected with God. I mean, he is a first-ballot Hall of Famer, no doubt. But something incredible happens. Something incredible happens, and, and in 2 Samuel it begins to kind of uh, uh, tell us more about it, that he is going to make a decision and then begin kind of a set of decisions that will uh, change the whole uh, rest of his life. It'll have these cascading consequences because he doesn't really deal with it. You see, our story begins there at the, in the 11th chapter in 2 Samuel, and it starts like this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men And the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. I'm gonna show you this this, so you guys can kind of follow along. There's a lot of characters involved. So, David the king, he sings Joab out. And if you were by yourself, if you guys were reading the Bible in your home or in a coffee shop or something like that, you guys might just read right past this verse, but it actually tells us something that's crucially important. It, It explains to us that David the king is supposed to be out at war that uh, instead though he has stayed home and he sent joab and all these other military guys he sent them out in the field but he's stayed at home now he hasn't done anything officially wrong at this point but i tell you what he's kind of in a dangerous spot he's in a place he's not supposed to be that um, uh, might set him up to do something that he doesn't want to do I mean, you probably know those places in your life, those places that sometimes we get to there where we begin to have that sense of like, oh, I don't know, this situation, I'm just not comfortable here. Or maybe we have that sense in our, uh, our, our bellies where we go, man, I just, I, I have just this uneasy feeling about the situation or about where I am. You know, we know that when we're there in these places that it's hard to make wise choices. And that's, that's where we find David now. It's kind of like, like, like that story that starts, well, I was, uh, I was just finishing up some chainsawing, and uh, I couldn't quite reach that limb, so I stacked the ladder on top of the table. You, you just know it's not going to finish well, you know, when it starts like that. And that's exactly where we find David today. Good things are not going to happen. And it says that David uh, went on top of his palace one day. And he lived in a nice neighborhood, had great neighbors. In fact, one of his, your, your neighbors was a guy named Uriah. And Uriah was a, uh, one of the premier captains in his army. And so Uriah, of course, was not there because he was out to battle. But who was there was his wife Bathsheba. And it says Bathsheba was out in the backyard bathing. And uh, like I said, Bathsheba was Uriah's wife and she was DDG. You know what I mean? You don't you don't. she was drop-dead gorgeous okay it says in scripture maybe not in those language but you know what I mean she was a hottie she was beautiful and so at this point um, David's up there and he's kind of looking around and checking out things around the neighborhood and this is where the decision is made this is the fork in the road and we have all been there at one time or another it's, it's that day you get home and you've had a long day. You're totally exhausted. You send the kids up. You say, go grab a bath or a shower, clean up, brush your teeth, and hop in bed. You, maybe you finish up the dishes. You're exhausted. You walk upstairs. You get to the bathroom, and there it is. I mean, it's like a tornado went through. I mean, the water is everywhere on the floor. There's towels on the floor. There's toothpaste on the mirror, toothpaste in the sink with the big whole globs. You know, like, how did it even get all there? And you got there's your decision. You kind of go, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I know what I want to do, but what am I going to do? What what does it look like to be wise in this situation? Or maybe it looks like this, you're out on the road uh, at work, and uh, some of the guys that you work with, they say, hey, we're going to go to the club, not the golf club, not the fitness club, the other club, the adult club, we're going to go there, do you want to come with us? And that's where the decision's made. That's the fork in the road. So what the fork are you going to do? (laughs) You know? I don't think he used that that saying correctly well it's just a place that we're not supposed to be you know and we're asking ourselves what are we going to do in those situations and that's where we find David he's there he's peering into his neighbor's yard and there's Bathsheba drop-dead gorgeous and uh, we kind of know where this is going to go it seems harmless enough at at first right no one's going to get hurt right I'm just in awe of God's creation I mean, incredible, God. I'm just worshiping you by your creation here. You were having a good day the day you thought up Bathsheba. But again, we know where this is going to go. And so he invites Bathsheba over to his palace. And who can resist the king and his palace? And so they together have an affair. Now, the next thing that happens is that um, Bathsheba, just a few weeks later, will inform David that she is pregnant with his child. And at this point, again, there's a decision to be made. He can still come clean. He can still do the right thing moving forward. But David's probably a lot like this. He's a, he's a problem solver. And he goes, you know what? I can figure out a plan. I was a problem solver on the military field. I'm a problem solver as a king. I can figure this out. And he comes up with this plan. He, says, uh, he tells Joab, his commander out in the field, and he says, hey, send Uriah back to me if you would. And he sends him back, and he um, is hoping and encouraging that, that Uriah will kind of do his husbandly uh, work with Bathsheba, right? He says, just go and do, do your thing. And Uriah, because he's such a man of integrity, such a man of honor, he chooses to sleep outside on the steps of the palace, outside of David's house, and not even see Bathsheba. Because he doesn't want to take any privileges, any pleasures that his troops out in the field couldn't have. What a man of honor. What a man of integrity. And I'm sure this is just eating David up inside. And I'll tell you what, he's probably feeling pretty trapped. We all know what this feels like, that feeling we get when we know we've gotten caught, we did something wrong, we know we've gotten caught. And I'll tell you, um, it seems like when we get in those situations, we actually begin to think things that we would never otherwise think. We begin to do things that we would never, ever even consider when we feel trapped and david's in deep now so he comes up with another plan he says okay i got it i know he sends a message back to joab and he says here's what i want you to do i want you to put uriah on the front lines wherever the fighting is the fiercest i want you to put uriah there and he says now when it really heats up in battle i want you to withdraw the rest of the troops so he's left there alone then uriah is sure to die and the plan happens just like that. It goes out there, front lines, troops re- removed, and Uriah falls in battle. So if you're keeping track, that's a decision that put him in the wrong place at the wrong time that led to lust, that led to adultery, that led to deceit, that led to murder. Murder. And what's worse at this point is that he's actually involved other people. It's not just him. But Joab is a part of it also. So now at this point, David probably thinks he's in the clear. No one probably knows about it. And so he doesn't need to deal with it. This idea of making the right choice moving forward, that doesn't even matter anymore. He doesn't confess it. And this is where I think kind of the justifying comes in. He goes, you know what? That Uriah, he sure was in a dangerous line of work. You know, it's possible that today he would have died anyways. It's not just because of what I've you know done, the orders that I sent out. You know, and then what would happen to poor old Bathsheba, you know, then what she would be left to fend for herself. I probably did everyone just a favor. I'll bring him, bring her into my home and I'll take care of her. And to be honest with you, I I know all about this justifying thing. Man, I'm like a champion of justifying my actions. I, you know, if, if it was a sport, if it was going to be in the Olympics, I would be representing the U.S. the Brazil uh, in 2016. I am a champion of justifying my actions. I mean, I'll, I'll work out in the morning and think I'm doing pretty good, and then I'll feel like I can justify eating cruddy the rest of the way, rest of the rest of the day. You guys know how this goes. Or maybe I'll say, you know what, Jenny, I'm going to be home late. I've got all this work to do at the church. I'm a pastor, you know, I'm doing God's work. You know, this pastor thing, it makes it so easy to justify, and it gets me in so much trouble. It's too easy maybe this is where david was also just justifying even what we know is to be really destructive really harmful decisions now nathan shows up now nathan's a prophet and he's caught in wind of what's happened with david and he's uh he's a real truth teller and he tells them um, this uh, story it's great this is an incredible conversation he says this the lord sent nathan to david And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. Now the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man, he had nothing except this one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared its food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, if Mike were here speaking, this is where he would insert a Fuquay joke, okay? But not this guy, okay? We're just moving on. Moving on. It says, now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him how we see this this is great you know we all kind of know where this is going but watch David's reaction it says David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan as surely as the Lord lives the man who did this must die he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity Now, at this point, um, uh, one of the most popular phrases, we use it all the time, and we might not even know that it comes from Scripture, that it's not right out of the Bible, but that's what Nathan responds to David. It says, then Nathan said to David, you're the man. Wait a second. No, he said, you are the man. Sorry, I read that wrong. Sorry. Sorry. and you can imagine at this point, you can imagine at this moment that, that, um, that David is just broken. I mean, he is exposed, and he just collapses. I mean, he is so broken. And, and this is why the Psalms are so powerful, uh, because we get really raw emotions. And each week, we've kind of been looking at one of the Psalms uh, to begin to kind of help us answer some of these questions, or at least kind of see into our hearts. And so uh, this is great, because uh, at the beginning of Psalm 51... You'll see right at the top, it says, this is, the psalm, this is the psalm that David wrote right after his conversation with Nathan. This is what it sounds like. It's a little like reading David's diary. It says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity, all my uh, mess ups. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Then he says this great phrase. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. There he is, he's asking God, will you still accept me? Will you still be in relationship with me? I mean, David's got this contrite heart, this broken spirit. He knows he's sinned against God and he knows he's sinned against his perfect law and he he knows that that has a significant damaging effect on his relationship with God and his relationship with others because that is the effect of sin in all of our lives. It, It creates a broken relationship with God and a broken relationship with others. Now, because we have this incredible creator, this incredible God, God does forgive David. He, um, he's not going to hold that sin against him. And this is where, for me, when I'm reading scripture, I think, man, this is where I want the, the, the story to end happily, that happily ever after, that it all turned out okay. But God's forgiveness does not remove the natural consequences that come from sin and from bad Decisions. In fact, this sin in David's life begins to plague the rest of his life. This is where it really begins to unravel for David moving forward. Bathsheba gives birth to this son, and uh, uh, the the one that was conceived out of wedlock. And just a few days later, that um, that child dies in infancy. Then, over the next few years, his family begins to fall apart. Amnon, David's oldest son, really the one who's supposed to be the heir to the throne. He rapes uh, David's other daughter, Tamar. And uh, because of his own guilt, uh, David does absolutely nothing about this to Amnon. He does not deal with it. He he does not uh, speak to him about how uh, destructive that was. He just lets it go. And then it gets worse. Absalom, uh, one of David's other sons, he gets furious with Amnon and he gets furious with David and so he takes matters into his own hands and he figures out a way to kill Amnon and again David does absolutely nothing he doesn't punish him and it's probably because he feels so guilty that he too has killed a man he too has murdered a man And Absalom goes from there to really attack and come after David. He drives him out of the city. And uh, in defense of the king, Joab kills Absalom. And things are really falling apart for David. David's had a son who's followed in his footsteps in taking advantage of a woman. He's got another son who's followed in his footsteps in killing another man. He's got a daughter who's been raped. He's got um, uh, uh, now three sons that he's lost. And David, when we see him at this uh, part of the story, he's looking back on his life and he weeps. He weeps over the death of his uh, third son, even though he was a rebel, even though he was rebellious and coming after him. He just weeps over the devastating effect of sin in his life and in their lives you see sin weakens our moral character it attacks our ability to right the ship or or to make a different decision the next time it fogs our vision it uh, makes us it almost impossible to see clearly in that area of our lives and, and to deal with that brokenness so when it comes up again we usually stumble again this is true in our marriages it's it's true as parents it's true in the in the workplace and how i want god to respond when i blow it is that i want him to forgive me and then i want him to take care of the consequences but the truth is how he actually responds is that he says i will not hold your sin against you i will forgive you but you will have to deal with the consequences and you see god has created the world with natural order natural laws Things that we can really count on. That's why when you throw a ball up in the air, you know that it's going to come right down because of gravity. And there's all these other scientific laws that we can count on. We, we bank on them. That's why uh, our bodies were designed in a certain way, that if we uh, don't move around enough or if we put the wrong things in them, then we begin to, uh, to look and feel the ways we don't want to. We don't, things don't operate that we want the way we want them to because that's how we were designed. And this goes for every decision. This goes with, for relationships, too. We all know this principle, right? That we reap what we sow. That the the decisions we made yesterday or last week or last month or a year ago or even a decade ago, we're reaping the consequences, both good and bad, today. And the decisions we make today will be reaping the consequences tomorrow and in days to come. A guy named Paul Tripp said it this way. He says, every day of your life, you are saying yes to things... And you are saying no to things. And all of your yeses will have a harvest. And all of your noes will have a harvest. We all know how this works. If I'm harsh and short and mean with Jenny, then I'm not going to have a great marriage. If I'm, uh, if I'm lazy at work or if I've got a bad attitude, or if I'm difficult to work with, well, then I'm not going to get promoted. In fact, I might not even keep my job. And the consequences of sin don't go away completely even though we're forgiven and this might surprise you but they're actually a part of god's grace in our lives without them i, I am certain that we would go on destroying our, our own lives and we destroying the lives of our people around us assuming that we know best just like a child who doesn't feel pain who reaches up and touches the stovetop, i think we would actually be begin to be encouraged to believe that we could do life apart from god but instead, these consequences act as a regular reminder to us that we are in need of a Savior, that we cannot do it on our own, that we need help. You see, because God wants us so desperately to know that He loves us in spite of our sin. So, so what's the answer? When I blow it, how do I fix it? Well, I guess part of the answer is this: like, you don't. I mean, you, because you can't, because fixing it actually starts with making things right with God. And you can't do that on your own. That's why, a thousand years after uh, we saw the King David weeping over the rebellion and the brokenness of sin in his own family, we see another king, King Jesus, weeping over the devastating effects of sin and the rebelliousness in his children and jesus that's why he went to the cross that's why he died in our place to take the punishment for us paul in romans says it this way but god demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners christ died for us but god demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners while we were still in that place while we were still rebellious That's when Christ died for us. Don't miss it. He died to grant us forgiveness, to fix our broken relationship, because that's the only way we can be in right relationship with God, is through Jesus' work on the cross. And so what does it look like? What does it look like to move toward healing? Well, the first thing is this. We've got to confess to God where we've messed up. You know, we don't talk much about confession. If you read through scripture, it's in there, but we don't talk about it much. But confession is so cleansing. It's actually like a laxative for our souls. I said it. It is. It's like a laxative for our souls. You see, when our pride gets in the way, we're actually prone to letting sin get the best of us, where it begins to grow into something far worse than the original decision. I think that's what we see in David's life. And in so many seasons of my life, that's how I've lived my life. And I can't mess up. I can't do any wrong. I don't do any wrong. And I tell you what, it's stifling to live that way. It's suffocating to live that way. And the more I think that I don't mess up, that I don't do any wrong, the more unhealthy I am. But there's a beautiful freedom to knowing that we don't have it all together. There's a beautiful freedom to knowing that we're all a bunch of screw-ups. We are, that we regularly miss the mark in our, in our uh, attitudes and in our thoughts and in our words and our behaviors and what we do and what we don't do. It makes it easier for me to confess my sin to God and to others when I know, when I know that I just regularly mess up, that I'm really just a big screw-up. And when I confess to God, I recognize that I am not God I recognize that uh, I'm not the one who created the world I'm not the one who is in control and that I am deeply loved just the way I am even in spite of my sin and my brokenness one of the guys that hung out with Jesus all the time a guy named John he said it like this speaking about this same truth he says if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us but if we confess our sins He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So, the first step is getting right with God. So, are there things today that are weighing you down? Are are there things that you're carrying from your past? Uh, are, Are there things that are getting in the way in you really loving your family well and doing your job well? Are there things in your past where you've hurt others or hurt yourself? What is it that you might need to bring before God today? Because He's listening. And He's ready to let you know how deeply loved you are. And He's ready to forgive. The next thing we need to do is to to own our actions. You see, unresolved sin constipates our lives and our relationships he's making a lot of bathroom references today <laughs> it does indeed it stops it up it it, it stops up growth and, and healing from where it could come from it it hurts our relationships it, and i think even bigger than all that it limits our uh, ability to be used in god's kingdom it's our responsibility to clean up the mess to move forward in healing to work toward uh, restoring the brokenness uh, that we have caused this is not god's job You know, we try to teach our kids this all the time. You know, if they make a mess, whether it's intentional or unintentional, then we say, well, we forgive you. That's okay. But it's your job to clean up the mess. When we screw up, there are times it'll be almost impossible to make things perfectly right again. But it's our job to do whatever it takes to see how we can right that wrong. See, as people who are forgiven and deeply loved by God, it's our job to own up to what we've done. It's our job to own up to our Uh, uh, Are part of the brokenness in this world and do whatever it takes to restore those relationships or the damage that's been done. For some of us to work through that brokenness in our lives, we'll have to uh, maybe go have a difficult conversation. We might have to go repay some money back, but we will certainly have to humble ourselves to make a difference here. It may be the best thing we can do in eliminating ongoing sin in our lives, thing that we're having a hard time kind of getting a hold of. We might end up having to go see a counselor, and that would be great. Or maybe we need to go sit down with someone regularly and make sure that we're kind of being held accountable to some of the decisions in our life. Or maybe we need to join a small group where we're surrounded by some other people going in the same direction that might care for me as I walk through some brokenness in my life. We might need to meet with a pastor. One of the things... um, we're offering here at Hope is there's a variety of things, a variety of classes. In your bulletin today, you'll see this care resources page. There's some, some classes, there's some groups that you, can go, uh, that you can get involved in that if you feel like you're going through a specific time of healing or uh, restoration or uh, over some brokenness that we want to be a resource to you guys. Again, even if it's just the start of just meeting with a, a pastor and kind of getting some direction on how uh, some next steps might be. But is there, um, is there something in your life that feels Unresolved. That's keeping you from loving your spouse well. That's keeping you from being the, the father or the mother that you want to be. That's keeping you from being the friend you want to be or the the employee you want to be. You know, one of my favorite quotes from Mike Lee is this one: it's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to do the right thing. Today's the day, you know. Don't let another day go by. Because even though Jesus' work on the cross uh, paid for the punishment uh, and paid our eternal punishment, the consequences of our broken uh, decisions of our sin in our lives still uh, affect us. But if we could begin to receive God's forgiveness and to really own our actions, well, I think that God wants to use us in incredible ways. I think God wants us to use us to bring healing into our families I think he wants us to, to use us to bring healing into our, our children, into our workplaces, into the groups that we're involved in. I think he wants to use us in big ways. And I think he wants to, uh, uh, to paint and a beautiful picture of the God he is and of the gospel that despite our brokenness, he's committed to us. A living picture of the gospel. That's who I want to be. That's what I want my life to be. A screw-up who uh, knows he's loved despite his sin, and who's committed to doing whatever it takes to make things right around him. Now, um, we're going to kind of give you guys a little bit of a gift today. You know, if you guys are like me, I come in here and I hear something great, or maybe God stirs something in me, uh, and then I have to go out there and my kids are pulling on me and other things are, are, are distracting me and so I'm going to ask Chris to come out here and he's just going to play through um, one song for us and I want you guys just to take a few minutes and just reflect uh, just maybe take a minute and think through like what is it that maybe I need to confess what do I need to bring before God what do I need to talk to him about And then um, the second thing I want you to think about is, I I want you to think about, um, I want you to really feel God's grace. I want you to feel His love. I want you to recognize more and more how deeply loved you are by God. And lastly, I I want you maybe just to listen, uh, that um, God might just give you a thought or a word or a little bit of a stirring that would um, make you know what the next step is. He wants you to do is to bring healing to bring change in those around you